today we're going to do something just a little different. I'm going to preach a topical message. I was really burdened to use today's opportunity for instruction to work through the first letter of John and do an overview. And at some point, I would really like to do that, preach an overview message of 1 John. But as I began to focus on 1 John over the last few weeks, my focus, I think, from the Lord has begun to more narrowly focus on a passage right in the center of 1 John that we'll get to at the end of the message. It opened up a theme in the Bible that I really am convinced I should preach this morning, and I pray that you will experience God's care and God's encouragement as we study. There are many, many times in life when Christians feel weary, when we feel so heavily burdened, so heavily burdened that we wonder, how much more can I take? This past Tuesday morning, something kind of unexpected happened. My family was reading together a portion of Psalm 22. I didn't turn to that passage for our family devotions at breakfast because I needed Psalm 22. It was because Tuesday was August 22, and it was the psalm that matched the day. So we turned to Psalm 22, and it's there in that psalm that David cries out to God, Have you forsaken me? Why don't you help? Where are you? And it's also there that David described the king's sufferings in ways that could only apply to Jesus on the cross. For example, he goes on in Psalm 22 to say, they've pierced my hands and my feet. They stare at me and gloat over me. They divide my garments and gamble for my clothing. When we finished reading the portions of Psalm 22 on Tuesday morning there at family breakfast, I explained I usually give like a one or two minute explanation. It's nothing huge. It's just, I just said, it's normal for Christians to feel forsaken by God. But I said, we have to remember that when Christians feel forsaken by God, we're not actually forsaken by God. Because Jesus suffered actual desertion by God in our place when he was crucified, so we would never have to. And then I went on to explain to my family, I said, and we have to remember that at the times when we are feeling most forsaken by God, God can be powerfully at work. Because on the day that Jesus was actually forsaken by God, it was the day in history that God was working most powerfully. And then I said, like I usually do in family devotions, let's pray. I bowed my head, and I just couldn't speak. I began to cry. My family all thought this is really different. After about a minute, all I could make out was, God, I thank you that we're not forsaken even when we feel like it. Amen. I don't, I don't often cry in family devotions, In many ways, I don't know why I cried on Tuesday morning. It's unusual for me to cry like that. And so a few minutes later, when Hannah and I were alone getting ready for the next things, she just said, honey, is something wrong? And I said, 
not really, but kind of everything. I said, there's, there's nothing really unusually wrong. There's nothing out of the ordinary. It's a normal day. There's nothing in particular that's weighing heavily. But there's a lot that's weighing. There are just so many things I'm praying about. And so many answers for which I'm waiting. He said, there are heavy needs in each of the kids' lives. There's issues in my own life. I'm not the kind of dad or pastor I should be. There are so many struggling believers, believers who are defecting, believers who are growing distant, believers who are in physical decline. And there are so many needs in all the ministries that we support. There's just so much. That was my explanation. In many ways, it was just a normal day. But a normal day has so many burdens. Crying was kind of unusual for me, but feeling the weight of heavy burdens, not particularly. I start there because I'm sure all of you can relate. If you were right now to take out a piece of paper and just start listing the burdens that you're carrying, it would not be hard for you to list out several dozen. Some of them, of course, would be rather little and short-lived, just little frustrations. Some of the things, of course, are life-altering. They're unrelenting. They're suffocating. And there are 20 or 30 in between that you could list out right now. There are many times where Christians feel weary and they just wonder, how much more can I, can I take? The question again is, what helps you keep going when you feel like you can't? What motivates your endurance? Well, of course, there are many, many motivators. There are many things that can strengthen you to keep going. One would be like work. God-given responsibilities sometimes just act like a drumbeat in your life to help you get up in the morning and keep going when you don't think you can. Of course, God-given friends can be really helpful. Rest and times of reflection can be really rejuvenating. Good exercise, good food can provide strength. A doctor's visit or a prescription can be part of God's encouragement. Music and nature can, can open your eyes to sublime beauties that you've been struggling to see for a long time. There, of course, are many truths in Scripture that motivate. Truths about God's presence or his wisdom or his all-sufficient grace. Like, all of these are good, good gifts, and they're, they're motivators. But my burden for this morning is to focus on the most significant motivator. And I know many times preachers are guilty of superlatives. Every week, the topic of the message is the most important thing for your Christian life. I'm aware of that. Today, I am not exaggerating for effect. The motivation of which I speak is truly the greatest. It's ultimate. So here's my main point. The certain expectation of seeing Jesus is the ultimate motivator for weary Christians. 
when we feel like we can't keep going, we must remember that we're going to see Jesus. Christian, weary Christian, you're going to see Jesus' face. I want to work out this theme with just four passages. They're admittedly random, two Old Testament, two in the New Testament. But I pray that these scriptures will come alive for us and will feed us this morning. The ultimate motivation. First, we see it in Job 19. You can turn there. We'll be reading just three verses. Job said, After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Job was a man who lived 1,800 years before Jesus. He loved God. He lived consistently for God. And God allowed Satan, the lead demon, to test Job in order to prove to heaven's armies that God is worth serving even when everything's taken away from us. So Satan went ahead and took everything God allowed from Job. He took Job's wealth. He took Job's health. He took, painfully, Job's children. And throughout the whole book, Job never stopped trusting God, but he continually wrestled with why God allowed him to be afflicted. In chapter 19, the passage to which I point us, right in the middle of his grief, Job experienced a brief moment of clarity. Job 19, 25 through 27. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. My eyes shall behold not another. My heart faints within me. There in verse 25. Job affirmed with conviction, one day I'm going to have a redeemer. Now he meant by that a relative who is going to stick up for him like an advocate in court, a legal representative. Job, according to James chapter 5, was speaking as a prophet here. He knew that he'd eventually have an advocate before God, but he didn't know all the glorious details of how and when that would happen. For example, he didn't understand that God the Son would take on humanity, sharing in Job's flesh and blood, and actually become Job's relative so that he could prove Job's innocence. And Jesus would prove Job's innocence not merely by telling his annoying friends that this suffering wasn't for Job's sins that he had committed. Jesus, of course, would stick up for Job like that. But much, much more, Job's Redeemer would personally die as the sacrifice for all of Job's sins and look at God and say, this man's innocent. And it's clear from this passage that Job knew his Redeemer was alive. He lives. Verse 26, Job understood that he himself would be raised from the dead. Look at that exact wording. After... My skin has been destroyed after I've been, as it were, eaten by worms. In my body, I'm going to see God. Wow. 
His Redeemer lives. His Redeemer can make him live again. Again, Job didn't know all the details of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. But he knew that his Redeemer would live forever and that his Redeemer had the power to give life. And he knew that one day in his own resurrected body, he'd see God. The last phrase of verse 27 indicates Job's all-consuming desire, as one guy put it. He says, my heart faints within me. Christians, especially you who are grieving like Job, there is no greater motivation to keep going than that your Redeemer lives. And one day, in a resurrected, glorified body, you're going to see God. You need to confess with Job right now. Even after my skin has been thus destroyed, in my body, I'm going to see God. The second passage is in the Psalms. Psalm 27. King David lived a thousand years before Jesus, and he was a complicated character. He had very strong strengths, and he had notorious weaknesses. Many of King David's songs include sorrowful laments. People who count them say about half of his songs are laments. That's because he was often engaged in war. He was often surrounded by literal enemies. His life was often threatened with death, and he was continually begging God for help in these circumstances. Fear was a constant temptation for David, as verses 1 and 3 of Psalm 27 indicate. As the last verse indicates, he was in need of constant courage, encouragement. Interestingly, this song opens with courage and ends with lament. In verse 4, in the more positive side of the song, David describes his life priority. Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And then David laments, beginning in verse 7, and this is his lament. Hear, Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me. Answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Don't hide your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. Oh, you who've been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. This is how David fights fear. He focuses on where his life is ultimately headed. He's going to gaze on God's beauty. And when David is crying out to God for mercy and help, what does he focus on? He focuses on God. He focuses on God's call, seek my face. Believers, our top priority in life is not escaping trials. Our top priority is not trying to make today as easy as possible. 
our top priority for life has to be God's top priority for us. In the words of Psalm 27, here's God's top priority for you. Seek God's face. And you're supposed to respond saying, okay, Lord, in all of my trials today, that's my top priority. Your face, Lord, I'm going to seek. Now, what does that mean? It means that every day, no matter what the circumstances and no matter what the outcome, we live for the God before whom we're eventually going to stand. We live faithfully for the God whom we are going to soon, very soon, see for ourselves. Christian, God has said, seek my face. Through Jesus, he has made the way in. One day soon, you are going to be granted access to the very presence of the King of Heaven. You're going to see God's face, and you're going to gaze forever on his beauty. When you're tempted to be afraid and to be worried about what's happening today and what might happen tomorrow, what you need to say is, God, I'm going to seek your face. I'm going to live with the thought of seeing you. God, help me be faithful. Number three. Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now Paul had been a Pharisaic Jew who persecuted Christians until one day he was physically blinded by a personal encounter with Jesus after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. That personal encounter with Jesus changed Paul's life forever. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, it qualified him to be the last of the apostles. So this highly respected Jewish scholar and authority became a leader of the despised Christians that he used to persecute. And for the next few decades, he ended up planting churches throughout the Roman world. Paul carried many burdens. In this very book, he lists out several of them. 2 Corinthians 11, he says, I endure constant persecution and physical problems and financial need. He even endured personal attacks from the believers he loved and the believers, some of whom he led to the Lord. How did this guy, under this kind of constant pressure, just keep going? He answers that here at the heart of this second letter to the church at Corinth. In chapter 4, He describes how the message that he preaches is so often rejected. And he describes how even Christians sometimes despise him. And at the end of chapter 4, he says, I'm going to describe to you how my body is wasting away. And then this constantly burdened apostle wrote 2 Corinthians 5, 6-9. So we are always of good courage. 
We know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we're of good courage. We'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. What kept Paul going? Despite being pressured, constantly pressured by so many problems. The thing that gave him courage was, one day soon I'm going to be home with the Lord. This man didn't fear dying. To be absent from the body would have actually allowed him the thing he preferred to be present with the Lord. He didn't fear dying. The only thing this man feared was displeasing the Lord whom he was one day soon going to see. His goal was to please the Lord until he arrived home. Do you see, Tri-County, that even when so many pressures are weighing on you that you feel like you're going to be crushed, like Paul describes in the previous chapter, do you see that the expectation of seeing Jesus' face can fill you with courage? The ultimate motivator for Christ's followers, the ultimate motivator is being at home with the Lord Jesus Christ himself and pleasing him, seeking his face is the top priority. Fourth and finally, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. It's focusing on this passage that originally led me to this theme. Here, the Apostle John, the one who walked alongside Jesus, lived with him for three years and personally witnessed his crucifixion and resurrection and ascension, that same man wrote a letter to churches he loved, churches who were threatened. He wrote it to protect them from false teaching about Jesus. He wrote this letter also to encourage their love and to encourage them to keep fighting their sin. What John does here in this letter is he continually teaches that believers should test themselves. And he encourages them to put themselves really through three tests. He says basically, do you pass the doctrinal test? And essentially that is, do you believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man? He asks Christians, do you pass the ethical test, the life test? And that is, does your life in the way you live, the way you behave, does it give evidence that you truly follow Jesus, that you submit to his authority? Not perfectly, but truly, decisively, you live under the authority of Jesus. And then he asks the third test. And again, this is repeated. It's continual throughout this letter. Do you pass the church test? Are you committed to enduring in love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? There's the doctrinal test, the life or the ethical test, and there's the church test, the test about whether you're committed to loving other people for whom Jesus died. Now to be clear, these tests don't make you saved. They don't give you life. 
They're like heart monitors. If you get strapped up to a heart monitor, the heart monitor doesn't make your heart beat. It reveals, it's a test that reveals if your heart is beating. And John says climactically at the end of the letter, it's this way. It's in this way. It's putting yourself through these three tests that you can be certain that you have eternal life. In the center of his letter, John chapter 3, he explains the ultimate motivation for continuing to live as a Christian, especially continuing to fight sin and pursue purity. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called God's children? It's not just what he calls us. It's what we are. And so we are. Now the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Jesus. Beloved, we're now God's children. Right now we're God's children. And what we're going to be hasn't yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That hope is not a wish-so kind of hope. It's a I'm-certain-so kind of hope. Look again at those words in verse 2. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. John is teaching here what Christians in church history since have called the beatific vision. That is the blessed sight. The experience of ultimate happiness. He says, Christian, it hasn't been fully explained to us what's going to happen to our bodies when we are glorified. We still have lots of questions about those details. He says, but we know this. When Jesus appears, we're going to be made like him. We're going to be given hearts that are free from selfishness and full of love. We're going to be given bodies that are never going to get sick or die again. We're going to be perfectly human in body and soul. The way God created humans to be. What's going to transform us? According to the last phrase of verse 2, seeing him as he is will be what transforms us. Let's just step back and think about this. In a sense, seeing Jesus is what converts us. In a sense, seeing Jesus is what changes us to be more and more like Jesus. For example, Paul says in one place that what it is to be converted is to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. He doesn't mean literally seeing with your physical eyes a physical appearance of Jesus. He means having God turn the light on in your heart to the fact that Jesus is Jehovah. And when God turns the light on in your heart, and you understand that Jesus is God, 
You bow before him and say, I have been living as my own master. I deserve your judgment, but Jesus, you died for me. Save me. Be my Lord. I call on you. Save me right now. Seeing Jesus in in, in the sense of understanding who Jesus is, what he's done, is what leads to conversion. Similarly, in another place, Paul says, seeing faintly, almost like in a mirror, the glory of Jesus transforms us from one degree of glory into the next degree of glory. In other words, bit by bit, as we come to understand more of the majesty and the meekness of Jesus, it is transforming as our hearts understand bit by bit. It's kind of like fog lifting off the ground in the morning. Over time, you can see more clearly and more clearly and more clearly what's out there. But we don't yet see face to face. If that's how we experience life change today, by understanding the glory of Jesus, by growing in understanding of the glory of Jesus, then it should not surprise us that actually seeing Jesus the king in all his glory and beauty, is going to be what finishes the transformation into his image. What's going to finally transform our hearts and bodies so that we're like him? It's seeing him. Seeing him. John says in verse 3, it's the certainty of seeing Jesus that motivates Christians to keep pursuing purity right now believers are you discouraged today with all the impurity that still resides in your heart all of the anger and the pride and the lust and the bitterness and the impatience and the worry Are you prone to, when you take an honest look at yourself, to say, I don't feel different. I don't feel like I'm changing. How could I actually say that God's at work in a person like me? Who am I kidding? Do I ever think that I'm going to get victory? I'm never going to be fixed. I'm getting worse. What is the ultimate motivator for perseverance? You're going to see Jesus. You're going to see Jesus. And the transformation is going to be complete. Everyone who has this certainty purifies himself or herself just like he's pure. Everyone. Don't give up. If you have failed recently, this week, this morning, repent. Get back up. You're going to see the king who died for you. The king who rose again. You're going to see him in all his majestic glory. 
Those are the four passages we have examined today, and I pray that you have been convinced that the ultimate motivation for Christian endurance, not the only motivator, but the ultimate motivator for Christian endurance in every trial is seeing Jesus. Whether you are pressed down with grief or with fear or with stress or with failure, if you, Christian, if you have embraced the gospel and the gospel message is that the king died for you, he rose again for you, he's coming again for you, you're going to see him. If that's the message you believe, believe what you believe. Lay hold on it. Grip it. Seeing Jesus is the ultimate motivator for Christians through every trial. The day after my family read Psalm 22 on August 22, we read Psalm 23 on August 23. And Psalm 23 ends famously, certainly, the steadfast love of the Lord is going to pursue me all the days of my life, and I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The certain expectation of one day seeing the Lord, being at home with him, is the ultimate motivator for weary Christians. Oh God, build us up today through your word. You have said, seek my face. It's the one needful thing. Lord, every believer in here responds, yes, Lord. My heart says, your face I will seek. Jesus, be glorified as we run with endurance the race set before us keeping our eyes fixed on you. Amen.